everybody, welcome to this episode of Why Are Castles Round. Just a note before we start, this episode ended up being about two hours long because it is a pretty lengthy subject and Patrick had a lot to say. Um, so we have broken this up into two parts. This is the first part uh, and the next part, episode two, will be out next week. Um, so just look out for that and uh, I'll let you get on to the show. Hello everybody, welcome back to Why Are Castles Round, the history podcast for people that don't know much about history. I actually was thinking today about our subtitle in that it kind of sounds like we're just making stuff up as we go along. <laughs> <laughs> um, but hi, I'm Piper, I am the host, co-host at least of our podcast. Um, I am the resident history kind of idiot I call myself. Um, I don't really know much about history. I retain facts about Lord of the Rings better than history facts, uh, which is why we have Patrick. Hello, I'm Patrick. I'm an amateur historian, um, which basically means I read lots of history books and have a great interest in history of all periods. Um, and in this context, I get to answer cool questions that Piper comes up with um, that I do not know beforehand. Yeah, so basically the fun part of this for me is that um, I will just ask Patrick a question and you just sort of have to answer it with the information you have available. Um and yeah <laughs> it seems to work well so far um thank you so much to everybody who's been listening in on the last couple of podcasts it's been we've got some really great feedback from everybody who's been listening uh we really appreciate it especially because as a new podcast uh we really rely on word of mouth so thank you so much for the feedback and for sharing our podcast and everything um so yeah let's get into this podcast i guess so the question i think i was going to ask this this week um is kind of about, I guess, like British history, because I don't know a lot about British history. I know the basics. I know that was like, there was an empire and we did bad things. Um, but I think a lot of people kind of like gloss over the bad things that we did. And we just kind of like, we have like, in Britain, there's like this collective idea that the empire was this great and amazing thing. Um, and it wasn't, really, was it? <laughs> no. Um, it was pretty terrible. It's the, the short, short answer. So just to clarify then, the question is, uh, on a grand scale, a overview of British history, and on a more sort of uh, focused note, the empire. In yeah. In spe- I was, I was going to say specifically the empire, okay. but I thought we could do like maybe a little bit of a series about British history sure. and maybe starting with the empire. I know that's not where you would start in British history, but that's just such a major part of it mm-hmm. um, and it has so many misconceptions about what it is and what happened and why it's not actually as good as British people seem to think <laughs> it is. Sure. Um, so, yeah. Okay. All right. Um, well, I've got to start this one with an uh, admission of um, new information. So... Fairly recently, a friend of mine um, pointed me to another podcast, name of which I've forgotten. Apologies, I'll put this in the description. Um, Was it the very British history podcast or something like that? Something like that. Yeah. But anyway, they were talking about in that, it's an episode that I've not yet listened to, um, so I'm going on very, very uh, bare bones information here, but the general thrust of that particular episode was that the um, British Imperial Project, or the English Imperial Project, was something that was actually sort of baked into Englishness and well, not Englishness, but England as a state. I don't um, understand what you mean by that. Sorry, could you? Okay, so um, previously, my understanding of things is that way back in the mists of time, about a thousand years ago, a bit more, um, before England is a unified single state, 
there's what's called the Heptarchy, which is seven separate Anglo-Saxon kingdoms um, that occupy the space now known as England. Mm. Um, and the sort of standard understanding of that was that the Heptarchy was quite focused really on um, internal issues within the British Isles, within the region of territory known now as England, um, the sort of inter-border wars, um, conflicts with the Norse, the Scots, um, the Welsh, people like that. And it wasn't until the Normans arrive in 1066 uh, that England becomes a more aggressive expansionist country. Right, okay, so when the Normans arrived in 1066, that's when things started to sort of come together in sort of a more unified so England exists from about nine, I won't say 970, but I think it's a little bit earlier than that. Around about the, the mid, mid-10th mid century, England becomes a single state. Mm. Um, it's one of the first states in Europe, um, and it is unified, um, and by 1066 you have um, a sort of a situation where the, the king, the, the Anglo-Saxon, the English kings... Um, are related to Norse people um, in Norway and also the Norse, the Normen, the Northmen in Normandy and France, which is why William the Conqueror comes across, because actually he's got some claim to the throne of England. Um, but at any rate, the sort of general understanding of that period of history for a long time, and for me particularly, was that prior to the Normans arriving, Anglo-Saxon England was very much a sort of insular, defensive sort of project and it wasn't really expansionist it didn't really have grand imperial designs it didn't have a, a want to conquer wales or scotland or ireland or norway or any of these places it was more about trying to solidify control over the heptarchy over the you know mercia northumbria kent essex sussex these places um and bring those together under a single king right okay um however there is an argument to be made and again, I must say, I've not listened to the podcast, I haven't read into this, but I know that there is now an argument to be made that the creation of England as a single state is in itself an aggressive expansionist project. Um, so basically the entire history of England is an aggressive yeah, and I mean, expansionist yeah, project. <laughs> and I mean, on the other hand, you have to look at this in the context of the time, which is that aggressive expansionism on the part of kings and, and chiefs and all that is fairly standard. Um, so it's not like it was a bad thing. It wasn't considered to be a bad thing at the time. It wasn't even so much as that it was like a... It, it didn't really have a moral aspect. It was just that's what you did. Right. You were a king. You were always looking to try and expand your holdings, expand your land, expand what territory you had under your control because that meant, you know, more money in your pocket, basically. More power, more control, yeah. more... It still kind of, like, falls back to... It, it still is kind of crappy yeah I and mean, of course it it's, it's all it's all all of this sort of expansionist violent aggressive conquest is violent expansionist aggressive conquest i mean it's it's not a good thing i'm just saying that at that period in the sort of you know post-roman world in the late well early medieval period it's fairly standard it's just what happens in fact mm. realistically speaking up until things solidify in the post-imperial era of the 20th century um countries are often quite expansionist or aggressive mm. um, some more so than others so it's a very long time 
throughout human history where people have been quite keen to hit each other on the head to take that other person's land. People suck. Yeah, basically. Short version, people suck. <laughs> anyway, that's just something to sort of give you very base background that when we talk about the Empire, we have to look at actually probably the whole span of, of English history, British history. Right. So you can't just start... We could. This st- is when the Empire started. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it depends what you want to... Sorry, it depends what you want to call the Empire because, you know, England conquers Wales in the early medieval period and the sort of you know with uh, the black prince and there's um the, the sort of battles in in wales um there's a whole series of wars on and off um that culminate in the creation of wales as a principality within the english crown which is why we have a prince of wales but not a, a king of wales um then obviously there's a whole ongoing to and fro war with Scotland that lasts centuries on and off. Um, we, when I say we in this context, I mean the English um, invade Ireland. Um, that doesn't cause any problems at all for anyone ever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> everything is fine. Everything is fine, yeah. Um, Ireland's a, an interesting case because a lot of things that were later then applied in foreign colonies and by foreign I mean non-British Isles colonies are first trialed in Ireland um, and things that like the Metropolitan Police and the establishment of the first police force the trials of essentially police forces begin in British colonies oh, wow. like Ireland right um, colonial police forces or colonial security forces are the model on which things like Robert Peel's Metropolitan Police are based. Um, Which may explain why the Metropolitan Police today likes to hit people a lot. Um, But to put all that on one side and and look more... Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Look more specifically at the Empire. If we go from the period at which most people think of as the start of the Empire, we're really looking at the Tudor period, the Elizabethan period. So we're talking the... Um, late 16th century when there is there begins to be a competition a race almost between Spain and the Portuguese and the Dutch for access to new trade routes Mm. Um, and the Dutch and the Portuguese go down the west coast of Africa round the Cape what about the French? I thought they did that as well. Yeah, the French are involved too, but the the Dutch, the Spanish and the Portuguese are the, sort of the instigators of it. Right, okay. And the French and the British come along afterwards and say, oh, that's a good idea, let's, let's have some of that. Um, and so the, these trading posts that are set up by the Portuguese and the Dutch and the Spanish, um, well, we'll look at the Portuguese and the Dutch first. The Portuguese and the Dutch... Basically, they travel down the west coast of Africa, they go around the Cape, they go into the Indian Ocean, and they go into um, sort of India. They set up little trading posts, they, go, they set up trading posts into Indonesia, the Philippines, um, Japan, um, and that allows them, they dominate sort of trade uh, for some time. The Spanish are locked out of this by didn't rough essentially of being a little bit too slow they have their own colonies and they set up their own trading posts and all the rest of it in in 
North Africa and as much as they can. But they um, really, they head further west and they sponsor people like Columbus to go off and find trade routes to places like India that don't involve the Portuguese and the Dutch. Mm. Um, and we know what happens with Columbus, which is horrible violence um, in the uh, Americas. He thought he found India, is that...? Yeah, he went to his death thinking he was believing that he'd found India. And right. he hadn't, and everyone knew he hadn't. How do they know what India was? Well, because they've been people have been trading with India for centuries. Right, okay. Um, because... I did say I was a history idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Th- oh, is that, is, this that, is that the East Asia... Is that the East... The East Indy Company. Indian India's... Trading Company. Yes. And that's so, because of Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. So the <laughs> um, trade with India is something that happens for a very long time indeed. Mm. The Romans trade with India. The Romans trade with oh, China. Yeah. Okay. They don't trade directly. There's lots of intermediaries and middle trades groups and trades people and the rest of it. But there are Indian and Chinese trade goods that show up in Roman dig sites and Roman wars and things that show up in China and India. I have a question yes. that's not really related to the question. Okay. But if we knew that India existed, yeah. then why did Columbus discover America? Basically because what he was trying to do was go the other way around. So people knew that you could get to India by going east. Okay. And you could go around the bottom of Africa and bump into India. Nobody had been west before. Well, no, because, well, they probably have. The Vikings had. They yeah. found Vinland, which... Canada. Okay. Um, but that wasn't there wasn't a record of that really. We only know that because we've got sagas that say it and we've also found archaeological evidence that show that. Um, so what Columbus was trying to do was something that everyone thought was mad because they knew the world was round, they knew roughly how big it was, and as far as they were concerned, there was nothing at all between Ireland's west coast mm. and like China. Right. They just thought that so was they a thought huge you just carried on ocean. going all the way around until you got to India. Yes. That's what Columbus thought he was yes. doing. And everyone thought he was. So going when to he die. got to when he got to America, he was like, "This must be India yes, because, because nothing, nothing else, else is here." Like, yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um, which was a great surprise to all the people that lived on Hispaniola, which is now Haiti and the country next to Haiti. I also imagine it was probably quite a big surprise for the people who were living on America, in America at the time, suddenly realizing the country existed. Yes, yeah, suddenly discovering that they existed, that was that was quite a shock. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Columbus finds... I think that was an idea, that's joke, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> I, My I contribution to this is basically <laughs> random pop culture references. <laughs> so, so this is all painstakingly working up towards the establishment of the British Empire. So essentially what happens is that Spain, Portugal, Holland, and latterly France create trading networks that slowly become imperial possessions because if you have a trading post you have a vested interest in protecting that trading post and the trade Mm. that comes out of it sure that makes sense so the next logical step is well you're going to send people to protect it which is troops and very quickly that sort of mission creeps and snowballs into well there's all this land and the people that live here aren't very well organized or if they are very well organized then we can deal with like we can communicate with them we can deal with them and all the rest of it but we can take stuff we can take land we can buy land we can trade land a lot of these trades and purchases are junk you know they're they're backed up by force of arms and are essentially off the back of exploiting divisions within local groups and saying that they'll back one side against another's fight and things like that Mm. um but at any rate these trading posts expand 
and the English, or the, the, so by English, what this really means at the moment is the English, the Welsh, and the Irish, under the banner of the English royal family. Um, they decide actually they want to get some of this cash. Mm. Initially, there isn't very much in the way of English colonisation because it's all piracy and privateering. Right. Because it's much easier to intercept Spanish trade convoys mm. carrying huge amounts of gold and silver from Latin America than it is to go and set up your own colony. Because right. that's expensive. Yeah, so requires... we were pirates, right? Yeah, yeah, we were. I mean, people like Francis Drake, I mean, he was a bad pirate, he was incompetent, but Francis Drake and similar people around that sort of time are pirates and privateers, and they go out and they attack Dutch and Spanish and Portuguese shipping and French shipping with or without letters of mark. And letters of mark is basically just a little piece of paper from the English government saying, you are essentially a member of the Royal Navy. If you're captured, you're not a pirate. You can't be hung. <laughs> countries uh, did right. this. It was basically a way of... They're like mercenaries at sea. Mm. So they're pirates, but they're official pirates. They're not official pirates. unofficial pirates. Okay. Unofficial pirates get hung. Official pirates get ransomed back to their government. Right. Um, a pirate that's state-sponsored. Exactly, yeah. So letters of mark are really useful and very, very popular. Who is Mark? <laughs> it's M A R Q U E Mark, and um, you know all the big powers have them: the French, the Spanish, the Dutch, the Portuguese, the British. We all use them. So, initially in the Elizabethan period, you're looking at um, adventurers, uh, pirates, privateers going out, raiding, col- you know, raiding colonies, raiding, shipping, you know coming back to England with oh, cargo holes full of gold and new ships, all this sort of stuff. Mm. So was it how we got our wealth then, essentially? Because um, we're a tiny little island, but we well, have... Well, that helps. Yeah. But what a lot of it does is it goes into the English treasury. As if we have our wealth, as if we... <laughs> yeah, as if, as if we personally have any access to it. But yeah, We've benefited I mean, from it in some way. Yeah, we have, yeah. yeah. I mean, we absolutely profit. have, yeah. <laughs> but the... So what happens then is that this sort of influx of, of money and also the, the awareness that these things are going on, you know, that there are French colonies in, what, in Quebec, there are Dutch in, uh, you know, the East Indies, there are Portuguese in West Africa, there are Spaniards in Hispaniola and in Haiti and places like that. And they're making money, you know, money hand over fist. And they're doing this through a combination of brutally exploiting the local people, slavery and um, ruthless violence. Woo, people! Um, sp- particularly, in, great. yeah, I know. Particularly in the Caribbean. So when I'm talking about like slavery and violence and all the rest of it, primarily that goes on in the Caribbean initially and in the colonies, the Spanish colonies in what become Latin America, Latin and Central America, Latin and Central America. The trading posts on the west coast of Africa are, um, they themselves are the conduit for the slave trade. And they take in the slaves and ship them off. Um, but they are not directly using the slaves. Does that make sense? Kind so of. So it's, like it's like a trading station. So what would happen is that African groups would, you know, they'd have, there'd be a war. One lot of African people would be captured and they'd be sold to the Dutch, or the Portuguese, or whoever it was, the English traders in these trading posts. And then they would be shipped across to the Caribbean. Um, 
that up until the 19th century, not much more goes on. So mm. a lot of these colonies aren't really colonies. They're just basically prison camps and trading posts. Mm. Defended ones. You know, they've got troops in them and all the rest of it. And they might have a little bit of land around them. But they're not colonies in the sense that we would think of them. They're not like Australia or India. Right, right. Okay, so it's it's more like a prison. It's though. yeah. It's it's like a it's like a warehouse, but the goods are people. Mm. Um, again, in India and the East Indies and places like that, the Dutch and, and Portuguese and French trading posts are primarily just trading posts. What really changes is that as time goes on, and the success of Spanish colonization in the New World, which made Spain fabulously wealthy because they just mm. pulled everything that was a precious metal out of the new world Mm. i mean enormous quantities of gold and silver and precious metals and all sorts of stuff comes out of the new world this is seen as evidence that actually this idea could work Mm. as a thing elizabeth has by this time died so we're moving on from the the late tudors into the early stuarts Mm. and what happens is you obviously get the mayflower it's a very famous one and essentially what goes on here when we when england accidentally colonizes america is that we i don't think it was accidental well <laughs> we just thought it was okay. <laughs> it wasn't we didn't like fall over and oops we colonized america it was a case of we wanted to get rid of deeply unpleasant troublemaking religious fundamentalists i have another question yes you know how a lot of people refer to um native americans as american indians which yes. i know is a slur yes is that because we thought it was india yes Oh, wow, okay. Yeah. So they're American Indian, well, they were called American Indians because yes. we thought it was India. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. To get back to the, the sort of timeline, <clears throat> um, England is by now starting to have colonies, island colonies, particularly in the Caribbean, in the Atlantic. We're setting up little colonies, some of which are successful, some of which aren't, and they're very much on a private mould. They're not done by the state. It's not very few of these colonies are the government sends people out on a ship saying go there colonize it's adventurers and private companies going out to try and see what money they can make Mm. and relying on support from the homeland Mm. be that economic military or political and usually what happens is that if these things are successful the home country will send out a political governor Mm. who will usually arrive with some troops and they'll land on the place and they've got right we're in charge now i'm in charge now we're going to tax you we're going to give you the protection of the, the soldiers we're going to you know whatever so uh, is that what happened in the pocahontas movie yes they turned up to the new world and decided that they were going to mine it and yes. make everybody i know that the pocahontas movie is massively terrible it, in terms of historical yeah, it's, it's it's but generally but, that's what's happening so these are private adventurers hmm. and they're rocking up to make a quick buck basically okay. and they're doing that and they're making that quick buck off of exploiting the local people mm. either by trading with them at ridiculously offensive like exchanges where it's like we will give you these buttons for your gold mm. um and you laugh but like there's a lot of trading done with beads and towels and blankets wow. and stuff because it's things that they didn't have access to and thought oh this is cool we've got loads of this shiny metal gold stuff like meh, doesn't bother us mm. of course kind of um i simplify grotesquely but there's a lot that goes on um and so th- this is this is 
happening for a while. These sort of fledgling colonies are occurring. And then the sort of big one is when we, well, when the Mayflower and, and the pilgrims go over. And they're called the pilgrims. It's all very euphemistic, but realistically, these are ultra-Protestant religious fundamentalists that were so religious that the extremely religious normal people in England at the time and the government and it were considered them dangerously so mm. they were oppressed they were um, arrested they were thrown in jail some of them were executed you know they were persecuted because they were seen as being really dangerous and eventually what what happens is they sort of like just sent off like well you can go over there and colonize the new world and mm. you're not our problem and there's a series of these ships go off and some of them are successful and some of them aren't and it, this develops over time into you know um colonization along mm. with similar dutch french colonization of the americas mm. and to a large greater extent greater or lesser extent generally speaking most of these european governments up until about the late 17th early 18th centuries aren't hugely interested in remotely controlling the overseas possessions mm. they're not really interested in them because they don't see them as particularly important there are exceptions obviously the spaniards have a really tight control over what goes on in the new world in you know central and latin america because it's making them filthy rich mm. um and it's the core backbone of their empire then in the early 18th century late 17th century early 18th century you get the establishment of the um east india company mm. and similar sort of commercial enterprises and they go out to i mean the british anyway go out to india and through a combination of diplomacy violence and bribery they extend control over the um, trading posts mm. because essentially what happens is that initially these companies turn up and all they want to do is trade and that's reasonably easy to do because you rock up and you find your local ruler and you say hello i'm from insert country here i would like to do trade with you mm. and the local ruler goes sound money for me money for you jobs good win-win exactly that's not a problem however what then happens is that the European companies want to make more money. And the best way they can, they can think of to make more money is to take more control. Mm. It gives them more access to land. It gives them more access to um, raw materials. It gives them better access to uh, safety and security for their own operations. And it's reasonably easy to do because you can do it through bribery through violence with your own troops mm. and bear in mind these are private companies fielding in the case of the east india company thousands of soldiers mm. ships even so basically like because they want to have the assurance that the leader won't say no you can't trade with us they take it over yeah. and say it's ours now yeah exactly and also it's a way of enforcing trading um standards that are good for you because mm. you can literally do it at the point of a musket or cannon. Right. Um, so this sort of thing is repeated 
by most of the imperial powers, particularly by England, all over the world. Um, well, I say all over the world. What we're really talking about here is India and four places like Portugal and, and Holland, um, bits of Africa and the Philippines and Indonesia, places mm. like that. So they all had empires as well, but yes. not as successful, I'm guessing. Um, they were just smaller. Mm. Um, but the England's big, or England's big break really comes with the East India Company and the establishment of the thirteen colonies in mm. America. So by this point, we move past the time where it's sort of adventurers and companies, mostly by and large. East India Company is an exception at this stage. Mm. And you've got full-on colonies now. So what starts out with things like the Mayflower turns into cities and towns and farms. And they're now fighting wars. There's like in the 17th century, there's the King Philip's War, where a confederation of um, Native American groups get together and try and push the British settlers out of what is, I think, New England. And failed. Right. It's a fairly brutal war, small as wars go. Um, and the native confederacy loses, and New England it continues to exist. Mm. But the, these are now official colonies. They're part of the government oversees them. They're taxed. They've got you know reasonable levels of support. So the European development of their colonies and the English development of their colonies is sort of marked really by this mission creep. So you start out with small trading posts, you go on from that to towns, you go on from that to cities, and every time this sort of step change occurs, there's more things that could go wrong, more responsibilities that get appear, and eventually they're sort of absorbed into the greater thing and it's like right well this is an official colony now or we're going to stick a flag in it and this is you know this is our territory right same sort of time frame 17th century 18th century sorry you're looking at exp exploration into the pacific and the um people like captain cook um australia is found by white people um and this is seen as something that can be exploited and used. Mm. Um, partly for national prestige, partly because it's there's a chance of making lots of money out of it. Um, That's what everybody else is doing. Exactly, everyone all else is other, doing it. All the other fancy countries are doing exactly. that. So I'm going to do everyone it else is doing it. It's important for us to do it. We need to not, you know, we need to make sure that we don't have suddenly a situation where we're strategically outmaneuvered in the Pacific because the Dutch have taken this island when actually we could have it, or you know. At the same time as all of this is going on outside Europe, there's lots and lots of wars in Europe. Mm. And these impact what goes on in the colonies as well. So, sorry. Drink your tea. I appreciate this is sort of a bit haphazard and all over the place. I'm going to hopefully, at some point, um, <laughs> I will uh, Get go, back, go back over it. But this is just a like, overview of the British Empire. I feel like we've not even got into the actual empire Well, yet, we, like... we haven't really, because, it, again, this is the sort of thing, like, when we talk about the empire, the classical vision of the empire is really the 19th and early 20th centuries, you know, Redcoats, the Zulu Wars, Africa, all that sort of stuff, um, by which point the empire is long established. However, mm. what I'm talking about really is the 
the creation of it, right? Yeah, the beginning of and the creation of European Empire. Um, so the the power struggles in Europe, in mainland Europe, and um, the, the ones that involve Britain are hugely influential in the creation of overseas empires as well, because having this sort of strategic depth where you've got overseas possessions that you can draw manpower from in the case of you know um, Indian sepoys or Senegalese tirailleurs in the case of the French um, you can draw raw materials out of them you can pull money you can pull slaves you can pull all sorts of economic benefits from these possessions that are protected from war in Europe that can mm. fund your wars in Europe um, and they change hands as a result of various different peace treaties um, in Europe. And at the same time, obviously, there's fighting in the colonies as well, because, you know, the English are trying to take stuff off the Spanish. The Spanish are trying to defend their stuff and take stuff off us. The French um, are fighting us in North America. The, you know, we push the Dutch out of New Amsterdam and it becomes New York. Mm. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of warfare goes on. And not all of it is against the local people either. Um, a lot of it utilises the local people either as you know, troops or allies or slaves or warfare. I just realised that I knew that New York used to be New Amsterdam because of that They Might Be Giants song. Because <laughs> it goes, old New York was once New Amsterdam. Yes. Why they changed it, I don't know. <laughs> no, wait, that's not the line. I can't remember. But... Something but Constantinople is why they changed it, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Um, they might be giants aside so <laughs> the 18th century is pivotal in the establishment of the British Empire really um, because you that throughout that 100 year period you have the um, the sort of increasing possessions within India the 13 colonies in North America there's the French and Indian wars that give us control of Canada um there's Britain becomes a major global power in the 18th century, particularly during and after the um, Seven Years' War, which is really the first world war because oh, really? it takes place around the globe because of the fact that there's fighting between the French and the English in India, mm. in Canada, there's fighting at sea, there's fighting in you know in the Pacific. It's fighting all over the world. Is it because of a bunch of Europeans? Because of a bunch of Europeans. So it, it's basically like European history has just kind of messed up the whole world. Yes. Okay, cool. Because <laughs> I thought it was just British history that messed no, no. up the whole world, but the, it's European yeah, history yeah, exactly. as a whole. I mean, this is the thing. Like, you can't, Amazing. You can't really talk about just the British Empire without discussing why it, you know, it, its creation as a sort of part of an imperial race between other European trading nations. So the 18th century establishes the British Empire as a major thing, as a big world power. Seven, world, seven years war, you say, do you say, sorry? Uh, yeah, so the whole 18th century, and then the, the, seven, right, year right. War, the seven years war is, is like a, an important point because it it, it, it it creates, or rather the end of it means that we dominate India we control North America almost entirely. We have domination of the Atlantic. We've got control of Australasia. We've got, um, you know, we're, we're now sending prison colonies out to Australia. We've got trade control over the Indian Ocean. 
it's pivotal, that war in particular is a very pivotal moment for the British Empire. Right, okay. The end of the 18th century obviously has the American War of Independence in the 1770s. The United oh, wait, States that was before America. the British Empire was really even established. Yeah, I mean, at this point, it's still the English Empire, really, mm. because Scotland is part of the British Empire and Britain, but it's there's not been the Act of Union yet, which I think is actually 18... Well, I'm going to have to look that up. I thought that the um, American War of Independence was like when the British Empire was like fully established. Oh, no, no, the British Empire isn't at its peak yet. It, it hits its peak in the 1920s. Right, okay. Um, in terms of size and... Because I thought the the American independence was like the start of the end of the British Empire. No. Like when everybody, all the other countries were like, well, that's a good idea. I'm going to do that. No. So the American Revolution and the American War of Independence um, is driven by a combination of factors. The quickest ones to briefly discuss are um, the white settler aristocracy didn't like the fact that Britain the British government was taxing them to pay for wars that they weren't benefiting from. Mm. They didn't like the fact the British government was preventing further expansion west because we'd signed various treaties with native tribal groups saying we won't expand further because we're quite happy with the territory we've got Mm. and you can have that. Actually, the colonists did want to expand west. They wanted more land for their huge farm holdings. They wanted more territory. They wanted more natural resources. They wanted, you know, all the rest of it. Um, and also we were wavering a bit in terms of things like slavery. We hadn't we hadn't decided it was a bad thing yet mm. because we were still making money hand over fist out of it. Right. Okay. Um, so it's profiting profiting us. So it's fine. Yeah. We exactly. don't we don't want to think about the moral implications yeah, yeah, too yeah. much just it yet. Was just, we're making too much it, money. It was just that there was there was some <laughs> wavering, and that was enough for people like most of the founding fathers of the United States to, to be a bit. <laughs> You know, to be I thought it was all of them. I think all by like two are yeah. slave owners. Right, okay. Um, there's a famous internet thing going around where a historian put a red dot over the head of every single founding father that was a slave owner, and I think there's two that aren't. I know that Alexander Hamilton was a slave owner, even though that he's like been, you know, yeah, I mean, made into a musical. Lots of problems with Talk about how that, amazing but, he is. Um, <laughs> we digress. So anyway, um, the American Revolution happens, the United States appears, and pulls out of the you know, leaves the empire when the british government isn't actually that massively bothered about it because as far as british government is concerned at the time india is where it's at india right. is the thing that is really important it's got so many natural resources it's got so much economic potential and benefit to spices us spices that we'll never use spices that we'll never use <laughs> but we can sell for huge amounts of money it, you know we can exploit india and we do for several hundred years 200 years some couple of centuries um and india is is key to the extent that the east india company is disbanded and and the raj is set up in the 19th century Mm. so if the 18th century really starts the ball rolling properly Mm. on the creation of the empire in terms of we possess india we possess canada we possess all these trade routes 19th century is where the empire explodes right. and the big part of that is what's called the scramble for africa right which is another one of these things that the european countries sort of accidentally fall into right um and again it's like mission creep and snowballing because 
what is essentially happening is that with the invention of things like quinine and of what sorry quinine it's an anti-malarial drug oh, okay um you used to drink it in gin and tonic mm. which is why gin and tonic was very popular in india and, I didn't know that. Because, amongst our because if you went to India, you drank gin and tonic because it had quinine in it and that protected you from malaria. Huh, okay. So there were Did some... it work? Yeah, it does. I mean, quinine is, is an anti-malarial drug. Mm. It's just that the, the method of taking it is slightly different now. I'm just going to move your phone because <laughs> I can see it falling down the side. Yeah. So in the 19th century, um, there are <clears throat> the... New Zealand is established as a colony properly. There's a series of wars with the Maori, um, which the New Zealanders and the settlers win. Not easily. The Maori um, defeat the British in New Zealand at a place called um, the Power Gate. I think I briefly mentioned that in the thing about fortifications. Mm. Um, Rings a bell. And there are some other battles that they win and things like that. But the, the key big thing that really expands the European empires is the opening up of Africa. Mm. And the big thing with that is obviously there's some exploration into the centre of Africa by white people, which previously hadn't been done because if you went to Africa, you were probably going to die. From different disease. diseases and stuff. Equally, there's lots of places in the uh, Atlantic, in the Caribbean and similar, where soldiers hated going because they were likely going to die. Wow. You go there, you get the early fever, you died. Mm. You went there, you got malaria, you died. Um, similar in India, like lo- there are huge grave graveyards in India that are just filled with children and women and men from Britain mm-hmm. who got the lasted a month, died, born, died. Wow. Um, you know these empires are won through horrible violence, but very large numbers of of Europeans die ex- creating them. Not not through war often, but mostly through sickness. Right. So the, the main single preventer of exploitation of Central Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa is disease. Mm. Um, however, in the 19th century, there are medical developments that mean that the main killers are no longer a problem. Right. Or no longer as big of a problem. Vaccines? Not, no? Um, no, not... At this, I mean, vaccines exist, but it's mostly quinine and a couple of other oh, okay. tablets and things. Um, and that's some... medical advancements, exactly. which that... are great, but not when they can allow you to colonise, colonise, colonise. Oh my gosh, I can't speak. Colonize. Thank you. you More places. So North Africa and Saharan Africa was basically sealed off by a combination of the Ottomans and um, the Spaniards uh, and a little bit the French. Because what happens, a brief discussion about North Africa. So in the 19th century, the Ottoman Empire, which for a very long time had controlled the Muslim world, Mm. fell apart a bit. It did that a lot. Um, But in the 19th century, it was no longer in a position to defend against European advancement. And so as a result of the Ottoman Empire's shakiness, the French colonised Algeria in an attempt to stop Algerian pirates... Um, and the British get an economic and then political and then military foothold in Egypt. Mm. Egypt is never officially a colony. It's always run by, technically run by the Egyptian royal family. Right. But with British advisers, inverted commas. I never knew that we were in Britain. 
<laughs> in Egypt. Yeah, yeah. We, we, the, <laughs> like, the British, because Egypt and North Africa and, and places like that, there's a lot of strategic value in the Mediterranean. Mm. Britain controlled Gibraltar, which is the main access point into um, the Mediterranean. There's a lot of trade goes through the Mediterranean. Egypt again, very important, useful, strategic foothold for India for for Britain. Well, I think of like people being in Egypt. I think of the Romans mm. and the French as well. Mm. So this is the uh, one of the reasons that the British are in Egypt is because Napoleon was in Egypt. Okay. So Napoleon invades Egypt mm. in the seventeen nineties, and obviously when the Napoleonic Wars end um, in the eighteen. 18- Teens, 1815s, 1816, the French leave India, uh, leave Egypt, but the Ottomans don't really recover Egypt, and the Egyptians sort of semi-declare independence. Um, I, I mean, they sort of already had. My knowledge of North African history is a bit wibbly, but the French go, the Egyptians declare independence from the Ottomans, sort of. They're still nominally under the Ottomans, but they're just a bit, you know, a bit like Scotland and British right. government, but. A bit more and less. Um, and the British step in, essentially, to the power vacuum and sort of go, well, we can help you out here. Right. And British officers go to the Egyptian army and British advisers go to the, British, the Egyptian government and all this sort of stuff. France colonises Algeria. The Spaniards colonise Morocco. Um, and the... Other countries like Libya and Tunisia um, are still part of the Ottoman Empire. Mm. So the north of Africa is a known quantity. It's colonised and has been for a very long time by the Ottomans, by in the 19th century, the, the English and the French and the Spanish. Although it's important to note that the English, the British government doesn't colonise Egypt. They just run the government. Right. <laughs> so, so Egypt isn't a colony. It's just a possession. But not. Okay. That's not confusing at all. No, not really. Not at all confusing. <laughs> think, think of Egypt as being like Scotland, in that it's a separate country but we with its own government. Mm. But and we don't like England doesn't colonise Scotland. Mm. But the British government has a big say in what goes on in Scotland. Don't we basically just run Scotland though? Well, not anymore, not since devolution, but we control its foreign policy and we control its right. a certain amount of its taxation and all this sort of stuff. Anyway, in Sub-Saharan and Central Africa, the, that is really well defended and locked off by disease. Cunning comes along and people can penetrate into it, and people do, like Livingston and um, a variety of other explorers, some of whom are, you know botanist geologist types who are just interested in what's there mm. others are adventurers with a gun um, and some are a mix of the two and very quickly on their heels come traders mm. and again you get this thing of the trading post is set up um, how do you defend the trading post oh, well we can get some guns and okay well we've got some guns and now we've got guns and we outmatched the local people so why don't we just take their land and oh well now we've got a town and oh, well okay well we'll get someone from England to come and plant the flag in it right um and initially 
this is a very short period. It's, it starts in like about the 18... I want to say the 1860s. It might be in the 1870s. We'll go for the 1860s, and I'll check this, and check this later. And it ends in about the 1890s. So it's right. a period of about 20 or 30 years. And in that time, all of Africa, mm. with the exception of Ethiopia, mm. is carved up between the English, the French, the Germans, the Portuguese, and, to a lesser extent, the Spanish. Oh, wow. The whole continent. Why not Ethiopia? Ethiopia is an interesting case. I'll get to that later. Okay. Um, and it's driven by people basically going there on their own time and saying, this is English now. <laughs> what? And the governments are absolutely hate it mm. initially because all of a sudden they've got this hugely expanded bureaucratic burden. They've got this economic burden that they didn't want. They have responsibilities they didn't want or intend or budget for mm. but people are going out there and doing it anyway because they can right and it's farcical in some cases like the german government doesn't want anything to do with africa mm. they're not really interested in having an empire mm. out yes. of europe <laughs> they want they've because germany's only just appeared basically this is like the creation of Germany mm. and they're very interested in trying to make sure everything works in Germany and perhaps thinking about maybe taking some land off the French or whatever their, their concern is continental Europe they want to dominate continental Europe right German nationals individuals there's a teacher whose name I forget sees that the French and the English are busily carving up Africa and decides that he wants Germany to have a bit of that right so he him and a series of like-minded individuals fund himself mm. and his mates going out to Africa on a boat armed with guns and flags mm. and literally putting flags on the ground and going, this is German now. And then sending messages back to Germany saying, by the way, we own this land. <laughs> and the German government initially goes, what? No. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> and then they think, oh, well, maybe there's something in it. Mm. And there's public outcry about it. So and who's the, this the German... random guy who just sort of decided he's going to go to Germany? <laughs> he's going to go to Africa I, I and can't be like, his name this, is, this but part of the country is he's, mine now. This country is mine now. He's not alone. There are Englishmen that do it, there's Frenchmen that do it, there's Portuguese people that do it. And they just carve up Africa. And initially, it is this race. There are people literally racing by boat, by um, on land, by horse, trying to get as far into Africa as much land as they can for their mm. own country um, to the extent that economic considerations aren't even a thing they're just how much can we get how mm. quickly can we get there can we get to that local tribe first with a piece of paper that says now you're protected by the Queen of England or now you're protected by the French government how is it like uphold, upheld so Guns. you know right okay so somebody stick a flag on the ground and start and defended the flag essentially yeah. so there is but pushback there's, I'm assuming there's like quite a few people doing this then because yeah there are Okay. I mean, at one point there is a race, literally a race, by, I think the Germans are going up the west coast, and the Royal Navy is going down the west coast of Africa, and they're getting off at every town they can see, every local village they can see, and sticking a flag in it, and signing a piece of paper with the village headman that says, now you are a subject of Queen Victoria. Oh, wow. And they're doing it because they know that Germans are coming, and so they want to make sure that this is now 
an English possession, a British possession. Um, I've never heard that before. That's amazing. It's the scramble for Africa, and it's just, like I say, it's 20, 30 year period. They carve up the whole of Africa, um, and reasonably quickly, within about 10 years or so. Oh, the Belgians as well. <laughs> mustn't forget the Belgians. Um, mustn't forget the Belgians. Mustn't forget the Belgians. So within quite quickly, the various different imperial powers realised actually this is going to be a massive nightmare if we don't get sit together, sit down together, and work out which bits of Africa we own. Mm. And so they do that throughout the period. They routinely sit down and go, right, okay, well we own up to here, and you own up to there, and we'll have this bit, and you have that bit. Of course, not talking at all to people who actually live there and the states and countries and kingdoms and fiefdoms and sounds, you know, irrelevant. like everything else they've done. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. They don't care because. At the end of the day, they're the ones with the guns and the gunboats and the power. Mm. Um, and by the end of this period, what you have is really the European empires in the imperial prime. So they control almost the entire world. is mm. carved up between primarily the French, the British and the Portuguese. Mm. Um, and so the British Empire is now dominating. At this point, it's very, very large. It's not the biggest it's going to be. That comes after the First World War. But it's very large. Wait, after the World War? After the First World War, War, it's the biggest it's going to be. I thought the First World War was where it was, like, downhill. And that Second World War, it was, like, rubbish. Well, it technically really is. It does start to come apart after the First World War. But But it's at its peak at that point. It's at its peak, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, what you now have is a situation where Africa has gone from essentially being a supplier of slaves and trade goods mm-hmm. to a colonised continent. And it really, this really is the sort of peak of colonisation. Because in India and other colonies abroad, by and large there wasn't a great number of people going from the home country to those places. Right. Lots of people did go, but most of those people were in the armies Mm. or they were in the bureaucratic um, governmental structure. Mm. At one point, I think when the Raj is at its height, there's like 200 white Britons Mm. in the Indian government. And India is a very big place. Yeah. Um, And all the rest of that entire governmental structure is made up of Indians mm. um, and yeah there are loads you know there are a lot comparatively speaking of British white Britons and French people and whatever living in India but it's not colonised in the same way as much of Africa is right. where you know people do go out there or Australia for example where you know large numbers of white people go out to Australia they go out to America they go out to Canada, they go to New Zealand, they go to you know, South Africa and they put down roots and mm. they live there and some of these colonial projects continue to exist <laughs> and some of them don't, e.g. Rhodesia no longer exists but... Where was Rhodesia? Um, so Rhodesia is on is in East Africa and was, it went by various different names but it was British South Africa and it was a colonial project whereby lots of British people went out and lived in this part of Africa. It's now Zimbabwe. Mm. Um, and, you know, set up farms and all this sort of stuff. And, and all of this is done on the back of military force. Right. Because 
there are treaties signed, hugely one-sided treaties, often that push, like for example the Shona in Southern Africa <laughs> okay. are driven out of their ancestral grazing lands by white settlers. Mm. And this suddenly makes them overnight impoverished and dying. Oh wow. Because they can't graze their cattle. Yeah. If they try, they get arrested and their cattle confiscated. Oh wow. So um, they like overnight literally there was within a, people a period that of a month. Just got wiped out basically. Well they fought back. Yeah. There's a, at least one and maybe two wars, neither of which they win. Because at the end of the day these are disorganised, fragmented groups of people attempting to fight against organised, highly motivated, extremely well equipped colonial powers. Wow. Um, and even when it's just... Just for power grab, essentially. Well, it's a land grab. Um, and the, the sort of economic drive of all of this is what can we extract from these countries, from this land? Be that people or raw materials. Right. I'm, I'm, a word that this is going dragging on so no 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 no, it's not it's not dragging on at all i'm just um yeah it's (laughs) it was it's kind of like like you said before you can't talk about the m the history of the empire without talking about all these other little bits and pieces yeah exactly it's It's all like related exactly i mean like my my understanding of it was like i think my idea of the empire which is kind of why i wanted to do this episode was just at its peak and like that like the british empire was just the ruler of the world essentially and the thing, the key thing is that by the end of the 19th century, Africa is carved up. The empires are now like an entrenched thing. They've been around for about 100, 150, 200 years. Um, they have their own momentum that's been keeping them going and expanding. And they've sort of run into the problem of there's now nowhere else left to conquer. Right. Which brings me to Ethiopia. Right. So Ethiopia survives primarily because it's a Christian country. Right. And How did it become a Christian country? So Ethiopia's been Christian Isn't basically Isn't it like since... at the very bottom? Um, so if you go below Egypt, you have the Sudan. Yeah. If you go below Sudan, you have Ethiopia. Okay. And Eritrea. But, and it's just above Somalia. So what did you say? Ethiopia and... Eritrea. Oh, that, what? So Eritrea is like a little coastal country next to Ethiopia. Right, okay. But so my goes... knowledge of history... Okay. <laughs> I wish you don't know the one about geography. <laughs> I would be awful. So... North to south, you go Egypt, Sudan, and now South Sudan, Ethiopia, Somalia. Right, okay. And Somalia is colonised by Britain. Sudan is colonised by Egypt and Britain together. Mm. Um, And Ethiopia remains its own country. Okay. Because it's useful for the colonial powers to have that break. Because Ethiopia is rapidly sees the writing on the wall, basically like, <laughs> oh no, <laughs> Africa is being carved up. Mm. They have an advantage in that they're a Christian country surrounded by Muslim ones, right. and there's an there's a inherent bias towards Christian Ethiopia on behalf of Christian France and Christian Britain. Is a part of the reason they're doing it to sort of like spread the religion, or no, no, okay. religion is around the well governmentally religion is irrelevant right lots and lots and lots of the people that go out and create these colonies are missionaries missionaries are a huge and negative part of empire 
which mm. I haven't spoken about at all this episode. When you say negative, it's a huge negative part. Yeah. Is it like it's negative to the empire or it's negative to the places to the where it's colonized? Yeah, yeah to, the, to the colonized. Yeah. Okay. Because they they actively destroy local case, cultures. Right. As far as the governments are concerned, they're quite useful because they enable better social control. Mm. They're a bit annoying because they often get into trouble and get killed. Mm. And that means you have to then go and exterminate a local tribe or whatever, and that's costly, and you might lose some troops, and it's a bit expensive, and you know, you'd know, mm. you rather not. Um, but by and large, missionaries are a, a good thing from the perspective of the empire. Right. So there's, there's hundreds of, maybe maybe more than hundreds of cultures and religions and and stories that we've like lost completely to history because the yes. empires decided that this is a good idea because yes. we want more land now please yes wow and one of the one That's of the depressing. yeah exactly one of the justifications for the creation the carving up of africa was well the, the two big ones were stopping slavery mm. <laughs> wait what stopping slavery because slavery was endemic in africa okay and the European but, empires had already decided by this point in the 19th century that slavery was bad. Okay. It was so bad because it wasn't making them money anymore. Because because the white people aren't getting rich anymore, nobody else can do it, yes. even though they profited off yes. it the most. So this meant that the existence of slavery was a bad thing. And mm. in addition, these poor benighted people weren't Christian. So the combination of those two things, they're not Christian and they're slavers, means that we have a moral justification to go out and bring them freedom for the slaves and Christianity at the point of a gun. And it just so happens that it gets more power towards the more power, home more countries. More power, more money, yes. That's so true. That is a happy accident. <laughs> exactly. That is a happy accident. So that was the justification throughout the 19th century. How for can the people, like, like how, do you, how do you get so involved in history? It's all so depressing. <laughs> <laughs> because it's... It's important, and that's why without, I want to learn understanding to understanding this, it's mm. very difficult to work out why we are where we are. Oh, yeah, no, I was being... I was being... But yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It, is, it can be very difficult. <laughs> um, so, where was I? Yeah. So Ethiopia is this buffer state, essentially. And the Ethiopian government, which has been trading with you know, Sudan and Egypt, and, and well, they have their own expansionist ideas, and they've sort of expanded out into the Sudan a bit, and they fight with the Zanzibaris, and they're a useful ally to Britain for a while. Mm. But they also spend a very large amount of money modernising the capability okay so they buy modern guns they buy modern artillery they hire modern advisors mm. and they create a situation where when the italians in the late 19th century try to occupy and colonize ethiopia mm. they are defeated oh wow okay and that defeat really scars italy and mm. the italian military because italy Again, is one of these places that doesn't exist until the 19th century. Prior mm. to the 19th century, Italy is a whole collection of different kingdoms. There's a big, long war, and Italy is unified. And they want to prove themselves on the international stage by going out and colonising a bit of Africa. Okay. Right? Because that's what all the big countries are doing. Right. So they pick Ethiopia, because basically by this point, it's the only bit of Africa that hasn't got a European flag in it. Right. And they fail. Because they run into an army... And a country that's prepared, mm. knows what's coming, and, is, and defends against it aggressively and successfully. Right, so they've, they've kind of seen that this is happening to everything else, every other country in Africa, so we better get ready. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And the Ethiopians are successful. Do they think it was going to be a walk in the park? The Italians, yeah. Mm. Okay. Because they've seen what happens in the rest of Africa. 
which is although there may be local setbacks like the Battle of Isandalwana when there's the Zulu war with the British mm. and the British army is entirely destroyed ultimately we won that war mm. because at the end of the day even though the Zulu empire and it was an empire was a very militaristic highly motivated highly disciplined military force backing up its imperial claims to bits of South Africa mm. it ran into Maxim guns artillery and repeating rifles I'm guessing more funding as well because well not not even necessarily just funding the English had a lot more money than I mean at the end of the day like the amount of funding was wasn't really relevant in that particular encounter because they're just so massively overmatched on the battlefield Mm. that they can't compete right Um, had the Zulus had modern equipment and modern tactical training they may well have given the British Empire a run for their money Mm. you know a proper run for their money not just the old battlefield defeat Um, so anyway at the end of the 19th century Italy fails to colonise Ethiopia the rest of Africa is carved up the British Empire is doing very well thank you very much Mm. huge amounts of money uh, coming you know from all over the empire into into England and that, that drives well going back to the 17th century for a moment the 18th century for a moment the empire drives the industrial revolution right because the inventions are created in England Mm. or lots of the inventions are created in England that create the industrial revolution but the funding is imperial so all the money that comes out of the empire Mm. goes back into the home country Mm. and funds the creation of huge industry and funds the creation of you know steel industry and pottery and cotton and all the rest of it Mm. and we then sell that back to the empire Mm. so what we're doing is we're taking raw materials out of these countries and and selling selling the finished goods back to them saying hey look at this stuff we made with all the stuff that you had yes exactly so we're not we're not pay me exactly so the british empire and empires in general do not develop the countries that they colonize and conquer because that's not what they're there for. They're raw material depositories, and they're taking stuff out and sending stuff back. So they're mining it and farming yes. it. And... Yes, okay. so they're, they're mining it, they're farming it, they're extracting as much as they can, as cheaply as they can, to then sell, to develop and sell in their home country, and right, to develop okay. the home country itself. It can start, to, you can definitely see like why, so like, like I knew why the British Empire was hated in the countries that he had colonised, mm-hmm. but you can really see why it was hated yeah. on the account of it wasn't actually doing anything for them. No. It if, was just taking, taking, taking. Exactly. Not actually. Yeah. Yeah. There like if, if maybe it was like trying to improve them and give them like share some of that technology mm-hmm. and share some of mm-hmm. that wealth, then it might have been, it might have gone down a little bit better, but yeah. because they didn't do that. And that was the argument. I mean, even was... if they had done that, it would be still a little bit terrible. <laughs> it, would still, it would still be awful, yeah. But that was the argument that was actually used was. What we're going to do is we're going to build these countries up until they can stand on their own two feet. At least the British Empire said that. Okay. So the British concept of the empire was that they were going to create in these countries stable situations so that those countries could then stand on their own two feet. Right. And is they... that what the Romans did? No. No, okay. The, Ro- the Roman Empire is <laughs> entirely different. Yeah, sorry. It's okay. It's just because they're empires and empires are much of a muchness. But Britain's reasonably unique in this area. I don't think any of the other empires actually have this as an objective, even as a... Did we well, Did we do it? For the white countries, yeah. Oh, okay. So we did it to Canada, we do it to Australia, we do it to okay, New Zealand. Okay, so these are the countries that are actually like... South Africa gets it as well. Right. 
So what the the myth is, and it is a myth, and they knew it at the time, it was basically just a fig leaf excuse. Mm. But the argument was, what we're going to do is we're going to turn these countries that didn't have anything there at all before because they were just these blank canvases with either nobody living in it or savages living in it. Um, apologies for the use of that term. It's just that's how the empire saw the people that lived there. They weren't, but that's... Were you speaking as a... As a speaking as a 19th century colonizer yeah yeah um so they'll take those countries those places and they will then create in them good upstanding christian democracies that can then be let loose into the world on their own as part of the commonwealth okay so canada gets this um australia new zealand south africa um and the intention, mm. in theory, is that India, this will happen to India as well, and Kenya, and Nigeria, and all the other British imperial possessions. Mm. That was never really going to happen. It was just like... It was just that's the claim. Point. Yeah, exactly. This is what we intend to do at some vague and... It was the Fire Nation saying, we want to share our wealth with everybody, but we're not going to because we're the Fire Nation. Yeah, yeah. We'll share our wealth with you eventually at some point in the future when everything's hunky-dory and correct. Yeah. Eventually. Mm. Not now. Or in 20 years or 30 years. But, you know, in the future. Eventually. Yeah, and it helps a lot if you're mostly white. Mm. We can do that because we can trust you. Because you're white. Mm. Um, This is all we had time for on this week's episode of Why Are Castles Around? Covering the beginning of the British Empire and how it started. Uh, Next week we will carry on this episode from the end of the First World War and how the empire began to collapse in and of itself. And what happened as well to the other European empires. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please share this far and wide as we are still a baby podcast and uh, word of mouth is of course everything to us. Um, and of course follow us on all our social media links which are available in the description of wherever you're listening to this uh, yeah until next week thank you so much for listening and bye